0: we are sure glad that you're here and we will start right promptly on the hour but uh, we've got some folks making their way in some students will be gathering with us as well i want to say thank you i can tell that you're preachers because you showed up for church even when other people don't right you're there and what a crazy crazy winter it's been has anybody not had to cancel at least one service or activity steve didn't look over here that's not fair so everybody's had to cancel at least one thing And I've heard of churches have had, really, had to cancel four, sometimes five services just because of the weather. So uh, we're so glad that you made it through the weather. We're delighted that our speakers landed safely. Uh, You're going to get to meet Lenny Lucchetti tomorrow, but him being here is an answer to prayer. He landed safely, and that's amazing. Yesterday, when Steve Deneff, our speaker for the evening, arrived, Steve landed in Moncton Airport when they were on emergency power. There were no lights on at Tim Hortons. That's a federal, that's a national emergency right there. No lights on a Tim's, the Holiday Express, everything was shut down, and the airport was on emergency power when you landed, and uh, you got here safely. So, what an answer to prayer. Uh, Some of you have not met Steve, but at supper time, we had a great time of fellowship around our table, and you're going to enjoy just the chance to connect with him. Steve's a PK, his dad was a pastor, so he didn't have a chance, right? Just kind of grew up around it, but uh, what God has done in his life and ministry has been fascinating to watch, just a great, great. Great note of praise. Uh, Steve's a prolific author. He uh, can tell you about how do you take sermons and your great thoughts and turn them into books. If someone wanted to talk to you, you could talk about that idea. Yeah, because how do you preach and be a writer? Like some of these people go off in cabins for nine months. That, yeah, that's not fair. But you figured out how do you do both. So uh, that'd be a great conversation for those of you who aspire to be writers. Lenny's here. Where did I see Lenny a minute ago? Lenny Lucchetti? Or is he, did they catch him in the hallway? He's still talking. Okay. And Dr. Peter Reed. Did I see Peter? Did he get seated yet? Dr. Peter Reed? Okay, he's coming in. There's still a group downstairs. They were having too much fun. We'll send someone down for them. Um, Who can I send down for them? You'll go see, thanks. We'll round them up. Uh, They are having a good time. We're so honored that you're here, and I'm delighted that uh, our brothers and sisters from across denominational families have gathered uh, for this and it's appropriate, I thought, as we started planning, I was sitting in the room, and, and they said, well, the best day to do this is on April the 1st. And I'm, you know, I, I like irony, and I thought, well, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching that some might be saved. So uh, we actually, uh, one of our working titles has been The Foolishness of Preaching, but it's really the festival of preaching. It's, it's celebrating how God chooses to work through human vessels. To speak words that are pregnant with truth and anointed by his spirit literally can transform lives. It's an amazing thing he calls us to be part of. And you're going to get chances to interact on a one-on-one basis with coaches, and that's going to be exciting. You're going to get to hear preachers talk about preaching. It's kind of like being a football fan and getting to go to draft day. It's that kind of buzz in the air. You just love to be used of God in a powerful way to share His Word and to be in a room full of people who have that shared passion. I hope you'll have great conversations. I hope you'll meet new friends. If you haven't met me yet, I'm President Mark Gorvett. It's my joy to serve with an amazing team here at Kingswood. Uh, We're blessed to serve what God's doing in the East Coast. Uh, There's some Wesleyan's on campus, but there's a lot of Baptists on campus, some Pentecostals, uh, Salvation Army. We've got all kinds of students here, but they're sharing this same passage of how do we, how do we share the gospel with our world? And uh, we're honored that you're here, allow us to serve you. So if there's anything you need, let us know. There are men's restrooms to my right, your left, ladies' restrooms there. There's a matching set if you go right down the stairs on either side, if there's a line. And if you need coffee or water, if there's something we can do for you, we're here to serve, and we're honored that you're here to learn. And so I do want to say a special welcome to Dr. Peter Rigby. Uh, Dr. Peter Rigby is the district superintendent for the Central Canada District, and he's in town for the World Hope Board Meeting, but for his own kind of birthday present or getaway kind of thing, he's here hanging out with us, and uh, we're going to have, Peter, if you'd be so kind, can I ask you to pray and uh, open this up this evening, and then we'll Without much more introduction, we're going to say Dr. Steve Ness is going to come and talk about preaching. So would you come pray for us, Peter?
1: Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have chosen to use human beings to spread the best news in the world. And as we reflect and as we learn, I pray that your spirit would be at work in all that we do so that your kingdom will be advanced.
0: We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So would you help me welcome pastor of College Wesleyan Church, a little mission of seventeen or 1,800 people, the author of several books, and our friend Steve Denef. Would you welcome him?
2: Love you.
1: Well, we get to talk about preaching now for the next two days. And some of you are going to get to do it, right? You're going to get to... Um, preach in front of a coach, or you already have, you've been videoed, and they'll be watching that and giving you feedback on that, and that's going to be an amazing experience for you, and you'll get to attend a whole bunch of seminars and just glean from what these guys, uh, Lenny's just just brilliant in teaching people how to put sermons together and develop them in ways that people will listen to. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a really, really exciting couple of days for you. How long, uh, who, has anyone here been preaching longer than 50 years? Yeah. Oh, well, Laurel. Oh, man, I forgot. Yeah, that's right. I looked over there. There you How many years? Oh, my goodness. What's that? 60, 50, 50-something. Wow. Oh, my goodness gracious. All right. Anybody been preaching less than one year? Brand new. (laughs) Okay, so we got all the spectrum here. There's a ton of experience. You should have no trouble getting tips on what is the next. Place For you to go because there's somebody here either right where you're at or one level ahead of you in terms of experience anyway, you'll be able to just probably a lot of the rich part of this is just mingling with people, you know, in between sessions and hearing what's going on because there's nothing really that encourages me more than knowing that other preachers are having just as hard a time as I am. Misery loves company. Some way through the sermon process, you're halfway through writing one, and it is not coming together. And it does my heart good to know that that's happening to a lot of you too. (laughs) So be sure to tell us your stories because those are just... Common, common stories. I started uh, uh, writing sermons even before I knew I was called. Uh, I just loved to write, and so at the age of twelve, I was writing longhand uh, things. And Then, by the time I went off to college, I would uh, I would start to try to preach. Back then was the days of cassette recorders, and um, so I would like I would preach, but I was in a dorm, and nobody wants to hear a student preach in a dorm. So I'd wait till after curfew, midnight. I would sneak out at night, go across campus, and break into the little weight training room over there, the old schoolhouse, and there with the lights out and a flashlight, I would look at my notes and I would preach into a cassette tape so I could learn how to do this. I thought that would help. There are Sundays, I'm sure it has not. So a long time in my life, I've been trying to get this down, and uh, there are things that you learn, but it's a moving target. A couple of years ago, I went with my wife across seas over to England. We spent a couple of weeks over there, did Ireland, did England. And uh, while we were there in London, we went to a place called Hyde Park. Have you been there? It's this gigantic park in the middle of London, and it has a corner called Speaker's Corner. been to Speaker's Corner? It's an amazing experience. When you go into Speaker's Corner, it is lined with people that just stand up on a pedestal and just start talking. They're actually like preaching. I heard about this for a long time, and so I was excited. I thought when we get there, I'm just going to go listen to these guys just drop the record on a wide variety of subjects. So that morning, I was up. I I was geek because it was the one day of the week they were all going to do it. I said to my wife, I'm going down to Speaker's Corner. She said, I am not going. She's a quiet type, you see. She doesn't engage in a real hot debate. She immediately backs away. I'm not sure why she's that way. So she said, when the day is over, we'll do something together. But you be sure when you go, you do not say anything. Went down to Speaker's Corner, and when I walked in, I was greeted by this long barrage of different speakers. There was one person who was standing up, dressed like Jesus, talking about end times, and probably his little group is here. He's got about eight, ten people around him, and he's just standing on on a folding chair, and he's just blasting away. And probably just from there to about right over here away from him is a guy who of Asian descent and he's doing hell and damnation. And he's on a stepladder. I mean, he's brought his pulpit. And then not far from him, all the way over somewhere else is a guy talking about, we have to go green because we're ruining the earth. And then a few yards away was another guy ranting on parliament, how they were screwing everything up. And it was remarkable just to, just to stand back and study the speakers. Some of them were expositional. Some of them were narrative. Some of them were inductive. They all had their own style. Some of them were mad. And then when somebody would heckle them, they'd get even madder. And it made it even more fun. You'd stand in the back and watch and go, I think he's going to take him out, man. And then what I noticed was after they had listened to somebody for a little while, they would just sort of drift. They would just sort of wander down and go to the next guy, and then kind of step in the back of the circle, you know. And they would kind of listen for a while, and they'd chuckle when he'd say something, and then he and then they'd go to the next guy. Nobody stayed in one circle. I felt like I was walking through a church directory. It felt like Sunday morning because you could tell who the best speakers were by who had the bigger audience. And what the people were doing is they were drifting from one speaker to the next looking for the best, most eloquent speaker, the most entertaining one. Nobody came to change their minds. Nobody came to even learn anything. They came to be impressed by the rhetoric of the person speaking, but they fully intended to leave that day exactly the same. And I thought to myself, in a bad day, this is church. You can tell who the speakers are really good because they have larger audiences. And even then, they don't stay long. And they come and they don't truly intend to change, they hope they can change, but then they will drift on to an And it raised a serious question at the end of the day for me of authority. Who has the authority to stand up in Hyde Park and tell somebody how they're supposed to live? Does he have it just because he says he has it? Is it preparation alone that causes that? Does he have information that we don't have Is it the following that gives a person authority? Is it his age? What gives him the right to just tear into people about how they should live? Um, When Moses was 40 years old, he was wandering around the back of a mountain and uh, he looked out and he saw some of his fellow hebrews being mistreated and so he he stepped in and he saw the injustice and when he saw the injustice he struck the egyptian and killed him and then he buried his body in the sand many have pointed out that what moses did was actually a precursor to what god himself would do with all the egyptians He would see the injustice. He would strike the Egyptians and bury them in the sea. You would think they would be elated. They were not. The following day when Moses went back, he saw two Hebrews fighting. He said to them, why aren't you guys going at it like this? And another one said, are you going to try to kill me too? And it must have put a scare in Moses because he retreated for another 40 years. The experience must have scarred him. And the statement that he makes to Moses is who made you the ruler over us? Vic Hamilton, Hebrew scholar from Asbury, says the way that the construction actually reads is who made you, O mortal, to be a prince and a ruler over us? And it must have jarred him so much that he just retreated for another 40 years and he would not come out. So that when God finds Moses 40 years later on the back of the mountain, he becomes a reluctant leader. He must have thought to himself for all 40 years, the guy's right, who gives me the authority? Who makes me rule over anybody? He's a reluctant leader. And so for the rest of his life, Moses wrestled with two questions. When God came to him one day and said, I've seen the injustice that the Egyptians are putting on my people, and I'm calling you to set them free, Moses said, I have two objections. Number one is, I don't know what to tell them. Remember that? He said, What shall I say when they ask me, Who sent you? What will I say? And so most of Exodus chapter 3 is God putting words inside of Moses' mouth because he doesn't know what he's going to say. And then in chapter 4, his second problem is, what if they don't listen? What if I say it and they just say, "Nah, the Lord did not appear to you. And I thought to myself, those are exactly the two questions we wrestle with as preachers. Is it not? Every Sunday with a blank, week with a blank page in front of us and the text is there, we are thinking to ourselves, I don't know what to say. It's just blank. And so we grind another one out and we get ready for Sunday and then we look out and the people are starting to come in. And then the second question hits us, what if they don't listen to what I have to say? The first question is my problem. The second question's their problem. But if I don't have anything to say, my problem is about to become their problem. And if they won't listen, their problem is about to become my problem. And so God's answer to Moses is, this is what you'll tell them. The I am has sent you. What will I say when they ask me, who sent you? Tell them it was the I am. I thought to myself, that is the question of spiritual authority. What people need and long for today is someone who can stand up and speak like they were spoken to. Like they've been someplace the rest of society has not been. And God has whispered things into the heart of that individual. And so when they stand up, they speak as a spokesperson. They are not the originator of their content. People need to know that there's a transcendent, eternal force that is behind the person who is doing the talking. Think of an iceberg. At the tip of the iceberg is a thing called spiritual authority. But like any iceberg, if you want to improve the size of the tip, you have to grow what is under the surface that nobody else sees. So the more authority we want in public places the more disciplined and consistent we have to be in private places that we never get to talk about. And we must be careful to guard those places. There are things God says to a preacher in a private room that he has no more business talking about in public than I would talk to you about what my wife and I do in a private room. That's frankly none of your business And it's not any of the people's business to know all of the things that God whispers to the preacher when they are alone. But it is in that privacy that that bottom part of the iceberg is growing in mass. And as it grows... Their spiritual authority will also grow. And that's what people will see. They'll find themselves attracted to a speaker and not know why it is. You've heard, you've seen it, have you not? There's guys could get up here and read the Greek alphabet. And halfway through it, you'd be like, Man, have an altar call. <laughs> like, seriously? The dude is only as far as Delta. And you want an altar call? Yeah, let's do it right now. There's something about the voice, the tone, the countenance, the aura. There is a presence that precedes that person before they come into a room. Now, here's the deal. You can't make it on your own. And you can't fake it if you don't have it and you can't store it from some previous year and you can't share it with somebody else saying, here, I got more authority than I need. AJ, would you like a little? And if you think you have it, when you don't, you're obnoxious. You start taking liberties you shouldn't take Because you don't have the brass to back it up. And people can smell it from a long ways away. Are you with me? So what is it and how do you get it? Underneath the surface, I'm going to stop here. We have three different sections. I want you to create four. If you're keeping notes, you will draw four sections under the surface of the water. We'll start at the first surface that is, or the first layer that is just under the surface. I've adjusted this so I can speak about it differently tonight. Authority starts with familiarity. It starts with knowing the people that we're talking to over a long period of time. Authority is granted by a congregation and the preacher honors that in his relationship with the congregation. When I was a young preacher, uh, I would go listen to all the greats and I'd study them. And, it, and they were amazing. I mean, these guys, I was maybe 22 years old and my dad paid $90 for me to hear Zig Ziglar for three hours. And the guy in his day, Man, he could bring it. Three hours. They never moved. He had them right there in the Masonic Lodge in Detroit. And then I'd go from there, and I would hear John Maxwell, you know? Totally different style, but he would just sit on a stool and just talk like this. And they were just drooling. And then I went to hear Tony Campolo. Oh, my goodness. He would tear it up. He did his whole, it's right. You know, African American thing, and he's white. He's as white as I am, but man, he could preach like an African American, and he was really good. And I would listen to my thinking, man, okay, I gotta have a little of that too. And then I would I would go listen to Ravi Zacharias. I remember being at general conference down in Knoxville, Ravi Zacharias preached, and I walked out of this thought, oh my God. Goodness, that was amazing. Walked out of the conference center, stood at the sidewalk on the front, looked at my dad, and I said, you call yourself a preacher because I'm not one, man. I quit. I was like mid-20s at that point. It was amazing. Earl Wilson preached a sermon at General Conference about 10, 12 years years ago. He's a general superintendent to us, kind of like the Pope in the Wesleyan Church. And five minutes into this, I could tell, man, he is on his game. I looked at my wife from the very last seat I could find in the auditorium. I looked at her, and I said, man, he's on his game. Watch what he does to this. She goes, watch what he does to what? I said, you just watch, baby. He's going to hit this thing so far they will never find it. And he did. For the next 40 minutes, he unloaded a sermon. And when he was done, I just looked at her and went, told you, man, they are still looking for that sermon. He hit it so far. I have a collection of sermons that I listened to that shaped me. And from each sermon, I tried to get a little bit more and add that to the kind of cacophony of voices that were shaping the kind of preacher I was because I was thinking if I could somehow have a little bit of that and a little bit of that, then I would have that person's authority. I misunderstood authority. Authority is not earned by one sermon. Authority is earned by a person staying in one place for a long time. Authority is not a home run, people. It's a batting average. It's an on-base percentage. It's not an A-plus sermon. It's a B-plus sermon in one place for 10 consecutive years. It's not measured by how interesting it was or how wild the congregation was when they walked away. It's measured by whether or not the congregation is actually changing as a result of the preaching that's being done. That is magnificent preaching, interesting or not, if it's changing lives, am I right? So great preaching happens when I become the person I'm supposed to be embedded in a congregation who is becoming the kind of church they're supposed to be. As we are both becoming what God intends us to be, it becomes great preaching. They lend me their authority. They trust me for a few minutes. And if I honor it, the tip of the iceberg will grow. Second layer. Focus. The obstacle to focus in preaching is ministry. We have so many things to do that we can't pull off of those things and focus on the one thing when everybody will be in the room. And so we sometimes get pulled away to the urgent that we neglect the important. Those 30 minutes that your mayor, by the way, would kill to have Every week, like we have, to say anything he wants on any subject without anybody interrupting him. Who wouldn't love that opportunity? So it's vitally important that we are prepared, and yet by its nature, ministry is urgent. And so it always pulls us away. I was listening to an interview once with Ryan Sandberg after he retired with the Chicago Cubs, And someone said to him, so tell me when did you get sick of playing? He said, oh, I never got sick of playing. I got sick of getting ready to play. And then he said, of course, when you get sick of getting ready to play, it's time to stop playing. That's exactly what happens in ministry. Your people do not want you to stop preaching. But they want you to stop getting ready to preach. Because they throw in the way of your preparation a hundred obstacles that we must constantly maneuver around and build a life that is disciplined to protect those hours of preparation. So, it's the getting ready to preach that is the really, really hard part. Nothing succeeds like content in a sermon. Nothing succeeds like content when someone is preaching. I'll say it differently there is no good way to say nothing. Many have tried. You can say something poorly, but you can't say nothing well. At the end of the day, most sermons fail, believe it or not, because the preacher has not found something interesting to say about God. That is remarkable. Here's one whose glory fills the universe and I can't come up with something new or interesting to say. Novelty is not what is needed. Depth is what is needed. Study, discipline, preparation. Paul said they are the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that word unsearchable means It is past finding all of it. We're finding now, in spite of all that we know about the universe, there are galaxies that are out there we didn't know existed, as deep as we can go into the sea, we have found recently that we can go even deeper. And you know what we're learning? There is more life in the Mariner's Trench than in other whole regions of the sea. And the life that is there is fully colorful. Colorful. And you're asking yourself, why on earth would the creator fill a trench so deep with creatures so full of color that will never see the light of day? There is no color if there isn't light. That's Paul's word. Their beauty is unsearchable until you get down there with one of those Machines and you shine a light on it and your eyes pop and you go, holy cow. Or you go, wow, in the Greek, I didn't know that existed. Those are the riches of Christ. They cannot be had in sound bites. And they take Hours to get to, but every now and then, when you find one, the word pops. I had a conversation with uh, David Wright, now uh, the president of Iwu, that shaped me. After I moved there, I was tied up in a hundred things. I was aside from preaching every day. I was, or every week, or most every week, I was starting to travel more frequently. Um, I was uh, on the GBA, I was on the DBA, I was on some other things, I was writing another book and so forth. And my life was frenetic. And uh, I met with David Wright and a couple of other close friends of mine and I said, I cannot sort it out. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And it was from that conversation that David put his finger on something that I've relied on ever since. Here's what he said. Steve, at the end of a person's life, there's only one of three ways that he can affect somebody else over the long haul. He can either do it by using people. He will build people by investing himself in other people so that they become disciples or replicas of his ministry and philosophy. Think John Maxwell. Or they will build organizations They will start an endowment. They will start an institution. Think Bill Gates. Or they will use ideas, words, concepts. Think C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton. Then this is what he said if you can master one of those three things, I said master it, not do fairly well. You will create a wake in your ministry that will outlast you for one generation. But if you can somehow master two of them, you will create a legacy in your ministry that will go on for years. And when I went back and did the work on the Luthers and the Wesleys, I think he's pretty close. They started out mastering one thing, whether words or ideas, but when Wesley married his ideas to his organization, it created a long-standing memory in the life of the church. Does that make sense? And when he said it, he said, God has told you to focus on words, which is kind of code speak for you're awful at organization. And from that moment, you guys, it liberated me because it started to allow me to narrow the thing that I was supposed to do and not to feel apologetic for that. From that point on, I was able to have conversations with boards where I could walk up to the board and write on the board. We had this conversation once, six things that ministers do. I listed them. Six things. We have to call on people, we have to preach slash teach. We have to do counseling from time to time. We have to be some PR in the organ, all these some organization, all those kinds of things. Then I said, list the thing that you think is most important to be effective in this church. List it according To priority one through six I gave them a three by five card they spent about three or four minutes ranking in priority and by the time they were done I collected the cards and then I went and I tallied up next to each one of these things how they prioritized them and I was utterly shocked to learn that every board member but one listed preaching and teaching as the most effective thing that had to be done in that particular church That was the day things changed for me. They said there's only one person who can focus on that better than the rest of us. That's you. That's got to be a large chunk of what you do because it's crucial to the overall success of the organization. We need someone who can articulate truth consistently and get it into our bloodstream. I said I can focus on this. I can learn it and I can do another one. What is it? After some clamoring, they picked it. I said, there are four left. What are we going to do now? First time, they started to volunteer. They said, if you'll do the two we gave you, I'll do number six. (laughs) Somebody else who answered too late said, then I'll do five. But it was fact, you watched the, the people in the church start to take the leadership in order to protect the person to do the thing they said had to be done from him. Does that make sense? And the focus started to come. Now in a larger situation, um, we have staff that protect that largely for me. So it, it on a typical week it'll be somewhere between 22 and 26 hours, maybe, in order to write one because not not because you have to, but because I can. But here's where I'm going with this. When Lori Carroll does surveys for the Great American Church Survey and she asked ministers how long does it take you to write a sermon, the average answer was somewhere between 12 and 15 hours. Are you tracking? Well, then she went to the congregation members and asked them, how long does it take your minister to prepare a sermon? The The average answer was two hours. So the discrepancy between the time they think it takes and the time it actually takes is what's causing all the grief. That's why they want to know why you're not at all those things because they think two hours, that doesn't take long. Do that before you take a bath tonight. And then you can go to my open house. See it? But it doesn't work that way, and we know so. So we have to create disciplines that guard the hours of preparation third layer down. Friendship. I'll be very brief about this. Loving the ministry is not the same thing as loving God. We can be students of theology, writers of sermons, defenders of the truth, eloquent and well-versed, and we can build large organizations and still, at the end of our life, be relatively a stranger to God. So part of the authority comes when the congregation senses that we have been long and often alone with God. It's the discipline of the desert. Every time God decides to use someone, he always, always, always sends them into a desert. Elton Trueblood said, it is true, two things are true of Jesus. One is that wherever he went, he attracted crowds. The other is that he tried to avoid them. It's remarkable, isn't it? Jesus was remarkably good with people, but he often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, Luke 5, 16. Psalmist says in Psalm 25, 14, the Lord confides in those who fear him. The word means he says things to them he don't tell everybody. This is kind of an Arminian gathering, I get that. But God has Favorites. Whosoever will may come, but God still has favorites, or at least I think he does. There are people he just flat really likes. And I can't tell you how to make that happen. I could tell you how to screw it up, but I can't tell you how to make it happen. I had a conversation with a student, we were talking, I was speaking on speaking on anointing one day, and the student walked up afterwards from IWU and he says, Wow, this anointing thing, man, that's fascinating. What exactly is that? I said, Well, it's kind of like this, this, and this. He goes, So how do you get that? I said, I don't know how to get it, but I, I know how to screw it up. He said, Yeah, well, is there a shortcut? <laughs> I said, that's how you screw it up. <laughs> You have to work that time with God and then he will whisper things to you and you get to say some of them publicly. The last base of the iceberg is the hardest part of all. It's the death of a preacher. People that die have more authority. Every one of us who are pastors know this is true you'll go to a funeral and a person's lived kind of a mundane life. And then on their deathbed, they will say the most basic things. And with all due respect, while they're saying them, people around the bed will lean down like it was the Apostle Paul. Well, again, with all due respect, I was with a family a couple months ago and she came to a consciousness and she started to mouth words, and the whole family said, what'd she say, what'd she say? And she said, I love God. And the whole family went, oh, my word. Oh, my word. Did you hear that? You know, as a pastor, you're trained to go, oh, my. This is a touching moment. But inside, I confess, I was thinking, so? So? People say that all the time when they're living. If you are ever thinking that, I highly recommend you don't say it. (laughs) You shouldn't say, what's so great about that? So I'm walking into these situations and I'm thinking, what makes people go, they're dying dying people have authority say where are you going with this well if you could preach dead can you imagine the authority you would have do you know why because dead people don't worry about their self-image Dead people don't lay in caskets and wonder if they're looking presentable. So if you could preach dead, you could actually get up and speak to people and never wonder whether they like you or not. Can you imagine that? You could go home without kicking yourself wondering, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Dead people don't do that. And they don't grab the power They don't take advantage of people. They don't seek glory. They are completely self-forgetful. I thought to myself, if I could preach dead, I'd have more authority and so would you. It's not without reason then Jesus continually tells us to die to self Because authority comes when people realize that a speaker is speaking to them out of genuine concern for them and out of passion for what they are saying. When they sense that the preacher is truly doing the thing that he's telling them to do, they buy it. When he deflects praise instead of kind of wallowing in it for a few moments, they're more apt to listen to that person. Um, When I was young, I said, I always wanted to be a preacher. And aside from preaching in the cassette tapes, I would study the preachers as I said. And my dad knew this, and so my dad encouraged me early that I should try to preach. And I remember... I would um, listen to preachers preach, and I would say to myself, someday, man, someday, maybe I'll have four or 500 people. Then that's just going to be it, man. That's that's the Super Bowl. I remember being in Coba Hall one time, and and uh, um, Campola was speaking that night, and the auditorium was empty, and we walked through to go to supper. And as we walked through, we got halfway back, and my dad said, wait, 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 wait. Go up, on the, go up on the platform. So I turned around, and I went back up on the platform, and I stood there, and I said, what do you want? And he, he went about halfway back, and he sat down, and he said, all right, now get in the pulpit. And I stood in the pulpit, and I said, what do you want me to say? He said, don't say anything. You look good up there, boy. You look good up there. And he said it. He was a father trying to encourage his son, but he was feeding the dream that someday I'm going to get to speak to lots of people, and they're going to just be pouring in to hear it. And then I graduated from college. At the age of 22 years old, I couldn't find a church. Nobody would take me. Finally, I found a desperate church, and... uh, When I started, there were 21 people in it. 15 were on Social Security. I counted. Week after week, I preached in that little church, and every week I preached, it deflated me. I got to one week where I was thinking to myself, you know what? What they need is a good Tony Campbell sermon. So I found a way to manipulate the end of this sermon so I could do the it's Friday And after I was through, I finished the sermon by saying, That's because it's Friday. And I expected 10,000 people to stand up and say, Sunday's coming. And not a one of them said a word. And I thought, What is the matter with you people? So I backed it up and I said, We're going to do that again. And I went through the whole rhetorical loop again. And about three of them went, Sunday's coming. It was still Good Friday in that little church, and it was that way for a long time. We served Christmas Eve communion when nobody came. Stood by the door on a Wednesday night, and nobody was in the parking lot. Twenty minutes after seven, I can still hear my wife say to me, Honey, they're not coming. Just go home. And it crushed the dream that I had that someday I would be able to preach. And I got angry. And I started lashing out at people for being inactive and you need to work harder to build my empire. One afternoon, a guy called me and said, tomorrow morning we're going down to hear a guy named Paul Decker. He's a missionary. You want to hear him? I thought to myself, well, not really, but I probably should go. So that following morning, I drove an hour and a half to hear this missionary speak, and he got up that morning, and this is what he said. You know, I didn't really have time to prepare anything, <laughs> so I think I'll just read a chapter from this book. I was livid. I thought to myself, I drove an hour and a half so you could read me a chapter of a book. Dude, Xerox it. Really? Really? But as he started to read, he said things like, you know, sometimes we ask God to give us revival, but it's not really revival we want. What we want is our own empire to be built. He said, we ask God to give us things, and when he doesn't give them to us, we're frustrated. But the truth of the matter is, God himself never had all of the things we want him to give us. The problem, he said, does not lie in our churches. The problem lies with our egos. And he called for us to die. And by the time I left that session that day, I was even madder, but for a different reason. You know the feeling in the chess game where the other person doesn't say it, but you know it's checkmate? And you're thinking to yourself, there's got to be a way out of this, but you know in your heart, I've just been had. I had that feeling. There is no way to avoid the truth of what that man just said. I drove back to my little church in Romulus, Michigan. I went into the office. I closed the door. I sat on the floor and promptly came apart. All of the charade came down. It was the first time God said something to me I will never forget. What if my wonderful plan for your life is not as grand as yours? Are you still in? I'd have done anything for God but fail because that would have only underlined the fear that I had of myself. That day in my little office, you guys, something in me died. And that same day, something came alive. There was a freedom and the liberty for the first time in my life to be the person I was designed to be. Not to reiterate somebody else's success because I was no longer responsible for success. I didn't have to succeed. I just had to be there. I was free. In my office, close to my desk, is a little piece of paper that I keep at arm's length, and it reads as follows. When you are forgotten or neglected or purposely set at naught, when you are stung with hurt or insult and tired of being overlooked, but your heart is happy and you consider it worth the cause, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of and your wishes are crossed and your advice disregarded, your opinions are ridiculed and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or to record your own good deeds or itch after commendation, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. And when you receive correction and reproof from someone who is of less stature than yourself and you can sit humbly, inwardly, as well as outwardly and find no resentment rising up within you. That is dying to self. And when we have so died, we can come alive. And people will tell it when we speak. Would you bow your heads? I've mentioned four areas, four layers of this iceberg. No doubt God is putting his finger on some of us, saying, tonight, that is the thing I needed you to hear. Maybe not, but very likely he is speaking to many of us, saying, this is what I need you to hear. As I say that layer... And that is your area. Would you respond by simply standing where you are? Familiarity. God is calling me tonight to stay in a place long enough to get the traction I need for authority. Focus. God is calling me tonight to discipline the routines of my ministry so I can protect the time that I need to prepare the content to feed my people. Friendship. God is calling me tonight just to himself. He's just telling me to love him. He's not telling me to do anything. He's just telling me to love him. He wants me to know him and waste time with him and bring him into the most mundane conversations and the death of the preacher. God has called me tonight to die. To lay on the altar all of my dreams so that my life simply becomes his. Sing this with me. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless. Them flow in ceaseless praise. Father, we have so much to learn this week, but it starts tonight by simply responding to your voice. I am so thankful that when you speak, your people hear you. Oh God, we pray not for more authority but for more of those things that are under authority. Believing the authority will take care of itself. And we seek your anointing. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's people said, Amen. Thank you guys. Thank you for the night and thank you for being here. I think there's uh, another part to this.
3: I'm always concerned about something. When we make a move from talking to God to talking about God, we could easily quench the Spirit. Plans are to be able to converse with Pastor Steve, ask him some questions, not about all of life, but about spiritual authority. Maybe to have him dig a little bit deeper especially friendship, when he says, I'm going to be brief about this. Oh, oh really? (laughs) Um, That's a table I want to sit and eat at. I don't know about you. But I am always concerned about making this just purely an academic exercise, uh, about making you a better preacher, a better homiletician, rather than, a deeper-rooted believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But my prayer is that the questions that you ask, Pastor Steve, will be God-honoring to the time that we have. That it won't necessarily be a self-serving question you have, but a Christ-serving, an other-serving, a foot-washing kind of question. How can I be a better Dead preacher. Um, I've heard a lot of metaphors. That one I haven't heard before. How can I preach as a dead person? But Pastor Steve is right. Just read the New Testament. You have heard that before. We just haven't liked it. It's not a territory we like. To live as Christ, to die as gain. My guess is my sermons will be shorter. But there will be more to the point. So I'm going to ask Steve if you, would, if you would come back up, put your earpiece on. And I'm just going to kind of be the traveling minstrel here. And if you have a question that you want to ask him about this topic, now don't forget tomorrow, 9 o'clock, we'll meet downstairs Lenny Lucchetti will kick us off with a presentation. We'll have many more opportunities to interact and to ask questions. So this one will not be your only shot at it. If you've got a question that you've been hankering, whatever that means, hankering to ask, um, this might be the time to ask the question about spiritual authority and the things that he shared. But what what, what question might you ask? And I will come to you so that everybody can hear the question. What would you like to ask? Steve, I'm wondering uh, how you stay dead. Like, how do you protect yourself from climbing out of the coffin or jumping off the cross and letting things go to your head?
1: Um, Depending on, uh, I I think depending on who you are, I think we have vulnerabilities. Uh, And so, um, in my case, uh, being raised the way that I was, um, and, and that's as far as I'll go with that, I love affirmation. And so that becomes a vulnerability to me. One of the ways I do that is I learn to deflect immediately uh, compliments when they come, but not in a crass way. I don't minimize the compliment. If they say that was really great, I don't say, oh, no, it wasn't, because for them it might have been. I generally bring someone into it or, more often than not, uh, deflect it to the people that are around me. So I'll say something to the effect of, wow, thank you. You know what, though? Th- this is a wonderful team here. They make a lot of things possible that would not be if it weren't, if it weren't for them. Um, in the case of um, women especially, I'll deflect it mostly to their husbands. I'll, I'll say something, boy, you know, after I say thank you, I'll say something to the effect of, boy, I really like Wayne, he is, he is so fun, man, he's a great guy, that kind of thing, in order to keep the attention off of me, and then uh, go home and refuse to tell the story, because that's what preachers do, they go home and they kind of share with their wife, but it becomes a way of embellishing the success, you know, a way of kind of hearing it, yeah, I, I kind of was something, wasn't I, <laughs> I guess I am a legend. Um <laughs> And so, starving, I mean, I simply find, uh, Francis de DeSala said, find where your weakness is and set up life in the opposite direction. And so, that's usually what I would do. Who else?
3: Preacher's quiet. This
4: is... Uh, Dr. Deneff, when you talked about how sometimes God will speak something to a preacher who, and then that is not for them to share with other people, what, could you yeah, elaborate on that? When is it something not to share with others,
0: or why is it not something to share with others?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Oliver. Sometimes... Um, uh, um Sometimes it's the timing of it. Sometimes I'm hearing things from God that are before their time, and if I say it now, it's just too early to jump the gun, and the congregation will not respond. They've not been prepared for it. Sometimes it's the sensitivity of the nature, and sometimes it's just because it was for me, it wasn't for them. The hard thing for a preacher is that you never know. Is this true for you? You never know when your study ends and your devotion begins, or vice versa. Is that true for you? I, I And... I'm finding that that's more and more common, and I used to try to keep them separate, but I don't do that anymore. Uh, I was talking with Lenny, and, and he said that it was okay not to keep them separate, so I'm not anymore. I just, well, shoot, then forget that. I mean, was what he's talking about, and I think he's right. He, um, you can, but that blurs the lines. Then you don't know what is just for me and what's not. So what I do is I ask for permission. I ask God, can I say that or not? Because that's really good. In some cases, it'll be no, you can't. Then I'll wait a few months and I'll go back and say, hey, are you still, you know, thinking what you were? (laughs) Because that would really fit this coming Sunday. (laughs) But I usually get permission from that if, if the lines are not clear.
0: You mentioned being on a uh, larger staff is easier to protect your sermon prep time, sometimes getting upwards of 22 hours to be able to prepare a sermon. I'm wondering earlier in in your ministry, in smaller church context, what practices you use to protect your preparation time?
1: Well, the nice thing about a small church is people, I mean, for the most part, uh, they don't really bother you a lot. If the church is dying, they leave you alone, right? Say, as long as you're here when I'm in the hospital, as long as you're there on Sunday, we're good. So that, <laughs> that helped a little bit. When, um, when the church began to grow, what I do is, um, uh, I, this was before the whole whiteboard thing, uh, I carved out days that I blacked out. And I also created separate worship spaces, to or, um, study spaces. I still do that now. I have two offices, not one. And there's one that nobody goes back to. There's nothing back there, nothing on the walls, nothing but books all over the floor and on the shelves. And there's nothing. I have internet, but almost never use it. Uh, and and that, that space alone uh, sends a message that when you're back there, that's, he's, a, he's alone. I've always had that, even in a church of 21. It was in the basement, but... So that was one way. I created days in the week that I just people just knew that that's the time of the week that I'm going to be pulled off for that, uh, helped with that as well. I also uh, read every night voraciously. So I would stack books up on the end of the desk before I went home, and then I would do my reading at home. What I do now is I separate my reading into different spaces in my life because the way my memory works is if I, is I associate something I'm supposed to remember with a physical location. It's not everybody, but that's the way my mind works. And so I associate books that I read on topics with... Areas, places in my life, living room at home, upstairs in the bedroom, second office, things like that. So when I read it, I remember it. And then I just leave the stuff there. And I quarantine um, um, myself off at at those times. I miss a lot of movies. But not March Madness.
2: Not a question, but a thanks for affirming that there isn't a difference necessarily between preparation and devotion. That is something that I've personally been convicted about, of struggling and preparing for classes and feeling like there ought to be a difference. And God speaks to me just as much through preparing for classes as he does through personal devotion. So thanks for clarifying that for a lot of our students, too.
1: So do you use some of the stuff that in your um, devotional time? Do you let that leak into your yes. sermon prep? How do you know when you can't do that to answer Oliver's question?
2: More of a wooing of the Holy Spirit, I guess I could say, or something. If I if I couldn't say it on the spot, then I haven't thought through it enough. Thus, I'm not comfortable with talking about it. So, it's if I can't say it off the go, then I, then I I chew on it more until I have more of a release to say it in a comprehensive way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's been times I've blown it, too. I I know there's times I've leaked stuff that I should not have leaked because I needed it so bad at the hour. And then I always feel like I have broken part of God's trust when that happens. I don't think he's ticked, but I, I, I think there is kind of a disappointment factor, which is pretty hard to live with.
2: Of, oh, sorry, of it hasn't been time to say it yet. That I haven't, that if I said it too quickly, if I said it when it first became known to me, that I, there was so much more that was going to be added, added to it that I, the Lord just hadn't revealed it to me yet. But if I hadn't said it when it first became known to me, there was so much more that just hadn't come to fruition yet, so yep. waiting it out.
1: Can I play the counterpart of that a minute? Because this is another lesson that's really hard for me to learn, and I'm trying it now, is um, the, other, the counterpart is eat the manna that God gives you for that day. Because my tendency is to say, I have these thoughts or I've got this illustration and things, and oh man, that will be amazing in three or four weeks when I really need it. And in some cases, that's true. But by the, what I've learned is three or four weeks from now, I've forgotten it. Even if I write it down, I can't find where I wrote it. And so it's gone, and it tends to be if I just eat the manna that has presented to me on that day, I have to trust God that there will be more two weeks from now when I really need something. You know, I don't know about you, but I feel confident about some sermons that are coming up, and I feel not so confident, insecure about other sermons that are coming up because there's sermon issues, texts, topics that I kind of have a random access memory, all about that stuff, and there's others where the cupboard is dry, man. And so... For me to not store it up for a dry week is a huge trust issue, especially in college church. So, but that's the counterpoint. If God has given you something that's fresh, share it. If it fits, now don't tangent, but share it and trust that He'll be back tomorrow with more f- food.
4: I, I guess I'm really old school, really old school. I can't. I have to separate the two, uh, my devotional life from my sermon preparation. I find that if I don't, uh, I, I, I and one way I get around it is I use two Bibles. I use one strictly for devotional reading, uh, and it's not marked up. There's not a mark. There's not an underline in it. It's just between me and God. And but but my work Bible, well. You'd have to cipher it to figure it out because it's just... Uh, but I, I guess at old school, I was taught this years and years and years ago when I first started here of, of that time, either morning or evening. Uh, and I think it's becoming even more important now because of the word Sabbath. Yeah. Because as a pastor, that is one of the hardest things to get in. Uh, you know, we, we can preach to our congregation about making it holy, but we don't. So if I don't have those holy moments... Uh, there's sometimes holes in my sermon, too. And uh, so I've been able to separate it over years, and I, I still maintain that. The other way, too, is I use a, uh, I write a, a diary journal. Oh, do you? Yeah. Nice. Um, I've got a short memory, but uh, and I don't bring my diary or my journal
1: to my pulpit. Uh, Nor my pull manuscript. thoughts from it into the sermon. No, I try not you? to because
4: um, <laughs> uh, it's terrible I might say this, but I've probably burned three or four over the years of my diaries, uh, just because they're between God and I, and oh, okay. uh, I, I keep those thoughts very close to my heart. It also comes from my, my Roman Catholic background uh, of learning how to uh, try to discipline myself in prayer and spending quality that way. And I mean, you're going to drag it back and forth, yes, but I still try to maintain that two, two different parts of my life. The other way of doing it is I don't do my devotions in my study. Ah.
1: Okay, okay, yeah. Yep, that would help too, wouldn't it? Yeah. Here's Brent over here.
4: You just seem to keep a really good posture about not only being someone that can tell truth, but also humbly receiving it and asking questions. Uh, I think sometimes I find that if I get into the mode where I feel like I'm being sought after, that I get to go into telling mode and to tell people what they need to hear, How do you balance that out with not always being someone that goes straight into telling mode? I found sometimes as a teacher, like I'm new this year, that there was moments where as I got into the teaching mode, all of a sudden I felt like when someone would bring a problem, it was my chance to fix it and to tell them what they needed to without really listening afterwards. Does that make sense? Yeah. And how do you not just always assume going into teacher mode? Because you seem to have a conscious uh, way of balancing that out well.
1: Well, I pastor a college church, and so I'm never the smartest guy in the room. Um, and that's pretty self-evident. So just about everybody in my church knows more than I do. Um, and so if I were, and I'm not being facetious or smart, I, it's, it's just a fact. Uh, and so for me really to go into a telling mode when there are other smart people in the room, I, I would be, it's not any sense of spiritual discipline or spirituality in my part, it's survival I mean you wouldn't survive in that environment. I think not everybody pastors college church, but I was it Roosevelt who said and here's the parallel, everyone you meet is a superior in at least one area. Find it, admire it and learn from it. So so part of that is I think when we're involved in conversations and this is a discipline that I am practicing is as often as you can, keep the conversation on the other person. Even if they say, well, what's happening for you, whatever, give a short answer and remember you're there to glean from them more than they need to glean from you because there's something in them. And I think that can be practiced in any situation. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think I've told some of you my first Sunday at college church, I'm waxing eloquent about something that Jesus said, you know, in John 21. And you know why Jesus asked, do you love me? You know why he said this? Because nowhere in all of the Gospels has any disciple told Jesus that he loved him up to this point. And, and you know, which, which turns out is true. And, and then I said, not even in the Greek Do they tell Jesus they love him up to John 21? And when I said it, I looked out and I saw Ken skank. And Ken was sitting there with his arm up on a pew like this. And he just went. And he slid his hand down like this. And he started reaching for his New Testament, which I presume was Greek. And he starts looking through it like this. You know I have two brains, and this half is preaching, and this one is praying, Dear God, if you have to change Scripture, change it now. If he finds it, I'm dead, you know? Well, apparently it was right. I mean, apparently it was right. I mean, I did the work. I wasn't winging it, but apparently, I, you know, you, you always think, oh, no, did I forget something? Uh, but it's that. That was my first week. So you come out of that, and I'm like, phew, okay, from now on, man, I am not the alpha male. That's it in these, when these guys go. So it gets real easy. <laughs>
2: Just wondering, how big of a role do you think um, accountability plays into what we talked about tonight, like accountability with brothers or sisters in Christ?
1: Uh, I'm, as you're saying that, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to connect it to each one of the layers, um, uh, starting with familiarity. I mean, I'm, there, I'm sure there's connections to each one of them. Let me just say the areas where I think it would be the strongest. Uh, would be um, in the bottom three. I think it would uh, clearly in the focus. It would take somebody to say, Are you pulling away as often as you need to? And can I help you do that? Can I cover for you while you get some time away? That would be huge. And in the, famili- uh, in the uh, friendship with God, have, have you begun? Uh, yeah, someone there that can constantly challenge me and say, um, Do you really know him? Have you learned anything lately that you know about him that you didn't know? And certainly in the death, certainly in the death. As um, Brent has alluded to, there's too many opportunities to resurrect. And so I would, I would need someone to keep me dead. And I do have. So it's, yeah, I would say huge in the bottom three. Thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. I think that's an essential component here.
0: You had mentioned the uh, spiritual authority gains um, with familiarity.
1: Was that going both ways, you to them and them to you? And you mentioned time being involved in that also. So do you
0: consciously develop familiarity with certain individuals? or how does that work with the congregation towards you and you therefore gaining the spiritual authority to speak?
1: Familiarity, as I defined it tonight, is the relationship that the pastor has with his congregation over time in multiple venues. Um, specifically in my case, that becomes difficult because the way that the day and the week is scheduled. I burn a ton of hours during the week, and so there's not a lot of margin in my, in my week for chit-chat, and people pretty much know that. Sundays is even harder because we do two services back to back, and the half hour that's well, the 20 minutes that's between them, I'm changing T-shirts and putting on a new shirt because the last one is soaked. Um, And so by the time I do that, I go right into the second service. So here's how I make up for it. Every Sunday, I'm just about the last guy to leave the church, almost every Sunday. I don't lock up, but I am about the last person, maybe one or two others, in the atrium. So as soon as the service is over, I come down to the main floor. People will stand around. I'll talk with them, and I, and I stay there as long as I can because I, what I've noticed is the conversations at the altar, at the communion table, are different from the ones in the atrium. I prefer the ones at the communion table. But once those have expired, then I move directly to the atrium, still soaking wet, and, uh, and then talk to people out there, and I find people that are standing along the margins for people that aren't being talked to. And I never go to the same person every single week. Um, And so what I'm doing there is I'm trying to create connections whenever I can find them. When there's functions in the week, I go to those. I'll drop in on Sunday school classes and spend 15 minutes just... Hanging out with them, and then quick run into the second hour, so I can spend, so I'm there for the last couple of songs, and then we can we can go. Sometimes I will even do that. I was in a class about three weeks ago. Spent 20 minutes. I, I walked in literally in the last song, while the 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 worship artist was just going like this, yeah, because I was trying to build those. Connections again. So all that to say, whatever the schedule is, I think we have to find ways to connect. Now in a church of 200, 250, about, we went to all of the open houses, and we would stay for more than an hour. There would be 12, 13 graduations, and my wife and I, always the two of us, go to every one of them and stay for more than an hour just connecting with people. Went to all of the anniversary stuff, but we didn't do things like ball games and band concerts. Does that make sense? All we're trying to do is to build a rapport with the people that have to listen to me on Sunday in order to keep that familiarity quotient high. Does that help answer the... Is that what you were asking? Yeah, in the in the, in the way our church is structured, it's really, really hard, but we, we still... I have to work extra hard in order to get that. If we go to three services, I don't know what I'll do. Back here, AJ.
4: Uh, I was just wondering about a clarification on something you just said. Does it take you a full half hour to change your shirt? <laughs> I could show you a few tricks with buttons and stuff.
1: <laughs> Don't do it here, man. not <laughs> Stop. Stop. Oh, you're great.
4: After uh, pouring out so much, I'm just listening to how much you're putting out, pouring out, uh, just thinking what Leo said. How do you Sabbath? How do you recharge? How do you protect that?
1: I very seldom get a whole solid day uh, of the week. Uh, I, well, I'll put it like this: I almost never get a, a complete day uh, uh, from morning to night where I'm not um, uh, doing something. In the weeks where I'm preaching, so again, I have to find other ways to compensate in those weeks when I'm preaching, which is about forty times a year. Um, I will, I'll grab two half days. So the second half of Saturday is a pretty good day because you're feeling okay, you know. But I always go to bed early at night. My wife says, you're Cinderella after 8. You just, you just won't come out. Um, and then the best hours of the day are Sunday afternoon. Those are amazing because the sermon's over. I can't screw it up now. You can only just go home and do anything you want, which is why not having a Sunday night service in my life is an act of God. It is wonderful. I'm sorry if you have one. Uh, I mean, if you have one and you're enjoying it, I'm not sorry, whatever. Uh, but man, that'd kill me. That would destroy me. I was, I, I was probably preaching heresy when I was preaching Sunday night services because I had to find something new to say, you know? Uh, but so that whole second half of the day is good. The other way I get it back is I bank, I bank the days and then uh, on weeks when I'm not preaching, I can take three or four days off and it's not vacation time because I bank them from the other uh, days that, or other half days that I wasn't getting. And so far it's, um, it's working, I'm not, ready i was going to say i'm not ready to pull my hair out but i probably couldn't convince you of that uh, i mean my our relationship at home is really really good and, and i mean what you look at indicators in our in our life seems to be okay question <laughs>
4: This is also a clarification, but a serious one. Uh, you talked about where do you find the time to recharge. What do you actually do? Uh, one of the things I struggle with is I, can, I find it easy to find the time, and then I have no idea what to do with it once I find it. <laughs> other than I don't want to be with people, but other, like, other than just sit around alone in a dark living room, which is usually my day-off plan. Uh, what, do you, what do you actually what do, you do? What do you find recharges you what do you find fills that tank back up for you?
1: When I was your age, I played in leagues. I played in three different leagues, volleyball, basketball, softball. Um, uh, now in my 50s, um, I will hike uh, or walk um, or run, um, ride bikes. Uh, I have a motorcycle. I have a Honda Goldwing, which I'll take out. And, and It just takes about a half hour on that, and it's another world, baby. Uh, Go to the reservoir. Walk around there. Um, my wife likes to hang out in stores. She's an emotional shopper. She puts. I watch the, the Detroit Red Wings, man. Yes. Yeah. And I and I grieve the Detroit Lions, bro. It's. <laughs>
3: One of the things that's great about being in a conference with a lot of people that have the same ideas, the same passions, the same desires, the same desire to want to grow and develop is you're already here. Um, so it's, it is 822. If I dismiss you, please don't just run back to your hotel room or run back to, to, to your dorm room. Um, I, I, I wish if I had actually thought about this moment, we would have coffee and cookies and all kinds of things to be able to keep you here. But it's not about keeping you here, it's keeping you in community. So there's a Tim Hortons, you know that, and Sussex is a important place because we have two Tim Hortons. Um, There are all kinds of places for you to fellowship together. So we're only gonna be together for this evening and then tomorrow. So could could you take this time And dedicate it to your craft, which is not necessarily preaching, is to your Christ-centeredness. Dedicate it to your craft of becoming a better better Christ follower, which guaranteed will make you a better preacher. Um, Love on each other. Fellowship with each other. uh, Share horror stories, success stories, and everything in between. But at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, we'll gather downstairs, and I promise you there will be coffee and goodies... You can already have your first or second Tim's by then. It depends on whether you're an early morning person or 9 o'clock is actually way too early for you. It's it's, it's lunchtime for me. But I encourage you to fellowship with each other, pour into each other, uh, and then let's gather back together again tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock. May I pray? Jesus. I pray for the bounty of your spirit to be poured out even this evening. In conversations, would you anoint the words that we share with one another? May they be words of encouragement. Bathe us, Lord, in a way that only you know. Many of us have come long journeys to get here through treacherous driving. Would you convince us again it's for a moment such as this? And tomorrow, Lord, I pray that when we arise, we would give thanks for the sleep that you gifted us with. That it would truly be a Sabbath evening of eight hours of God-inspired rest. And bring us back ready to be engaged with you and your people. Thanks, Lord, for this evening. May tomorrow be richer yet. It's in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Steve. Friends, go with God.